listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. As those of you who have been part of the Grief Out Loud community for a while know, we love a multi-part series around here. We've done one on language, suicide, and stigma, one on grieving when someone dies of an overdose, and most recently, we looked at what's changed for grieving children, where we interviewed people who had a parent die in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Spoiler alert, while some families and communities are definitely more open about talking about death and grief with children, there's still a lot that hasn't changed when it comes to how the world responds to grieving kids. This episode kicks off our newest series, Exploring the Realm of Parenting and Grief. We'll be talking to parents about how they balance showing up for their kids while also making time for their own grief. We'll also delve into how grief can show up differently for kids depending on their age and developmental level, and what parents discovered about how to best support their kids through this really intense and confusing landscape of grief. In this first episode of the series, we talk with Josh about what it was like to parent his daughter Sylvia after his wife Kari died of suicide when Sylvia was just five and a half. You might be thinking this story sounds really familiar, especially if you listen to our last episode, 117. That one's a brief clip of a longer Road to Resilience conversation Josh and Sylvia recorded as part of our partnership with StoryCorps and the New York Life Foundation. If you missed it, be sure to go check it out. Okay, here's my conversation with Josh. Josh, thanks so much for being part of Grief Out Loud and talking with me today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. When you first heard that Kari died, what what was like the initial thought that came to your mind about your daughter Sylvia? Uh, the first thing was like, how do I tell her? Um, I was I was going to look for Kari, and the medical examiner pulled up. Uh, to my house, like right as I was getting ready to leave. So I went and talked to him and he, you know, he was very, of course, direct and just like, yeah, your wife is dead. She jumped off a bridge. The first thing I said to him was like, how do I tell my daughter? And he just said, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there was no answer. And uh, so then I went, got back in my car because it was like half in the street, half not in the street to park it. And I called a friend of mine who had also been looking for Kari and said, you know, she's dead. And how do I tell Sylvia? And nobody, of course, had an answer. Mm. But that was that was definitely the first thing that came to mind. Yeah. And how did you end up explaining it to her? Uh, well, at first I said, um, mommy fell and got hurt really bad and she's dead. And then uh, people got me in touch with the Dougie Center very soon after that, read about how you should really just be clear and honest. And so... It was probably a week later, maybe even less than that, when I said that, you know, she didn't actually fall. She jumped and she did it on purpose because she was so sad. Do you recall what your initial like emotional or intellectual response was to the idea of being really honest with Sylvia that her mom died of suicide? I think in the beginning, I, I just felt like that makes a lot of sense. 
I'm also a direction follower. So, you know, I got the information and I was like, okay, that's how you're supposed to do it. So I should just try that and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it was pretty clear in the beginning, you know, right away after I talked to her about it that, yeah, okay, she's five years old, but she can handle this and we can have a, a simple conversation about it. And what do you remember about how she responded after you told her the information, both when you told her she fell and then also when you gave her additional information that she had jumped? Uh, she just started crying, you know, when I first told her at the very first time. I think, you know, when I changed the story to be more clear and honest about what had happened, that's a great question. I, I can't really remember exactly how she responded to it, but she's a pretty level-headed kid most of the time, and and I may just be, like, making up the memories here, but I think she understood it and she was glad to know mm. what the truth was. But, you know, in the the very first day, of course, it was just like huge emotional release. And, uh, and it, you know, that happened a lot over the first couple of years, crying mm -hmm. when things didn't go her way. And, you know, I want my mommy, stuff like that. And that's one of the questions we get a lot is, you know, what is grief going to look like for a kiddo who is five, six, seven years old? In your experience, what did how did grief show up for Sylvia? So she got angry a lot and mad at me. Like I remember her being mad for just like little things and she'd get really angry. And I want my mother, I want my mom. When it wasn't anger, it was just sadness. Yeah, I remember talking to her teacher about it and how, uh, you know, little things that just didn't go her way in the kindergarten classroom. She wouldn't really bounce back from it very well she would just like kind of fall apart and cry and say she missed her mother and even though it was probably really just about like she wanted to play with that toy and the other mm. kid had it but then that would turn into like I want my mom I miss my mom almost like the the magnetic pull to like this is the original ouch and here's mm -hmm. a new ouch and these two have to be connected right yeah I mean she would always she, not always she would often go back to that loss as the source of pain and anger. Mm -hmm. Whether you're five or 45, it seems clear that like our ability to tolerate additional like frustration or challenging times gets diminished in some way when we're grieving because we're already pretty maxed out. Yeah. I mean, just even problem solving. I mean, everything, my brain was totally preoccupied. It was hard to do much of anything. Things just took a lot longer. Yeah. Everything just got more difficult. So in those times when Sylvia was angry or yelling, like, I want my mom, like, what was that like for you? How did you respond? I mean, it's terrible. I mean, it's just so sad. My response was mostly like, yeah, I, me too, you know, and if she would let me, which she usually did, you know, we would eventually hug and just be sad together. But yeah, I mean, that, that, there's not much else to say. It's like, you know, I want my mom back and like, yeah, I want her back too. How about when it came to things like setting limits or, you know, kids who are grieving are still kids who need direction and guidance and accountability in some way. How would that work when she was, you know, in the midst of this grief and you're like, and we still need to get ready for school or, and we still need to get ready for bed? That's pretty much exactly how it goes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like this sucks and I'm sad and, uh, and this stuff also has to happen and we can do both. Did you get a sense of what 
she needed in her grief and like what would be helpful for her and things that weren't very helpful for her, either from you or from other folks in her community? Well, one thing that my like intuition was pretty important is just being on time to pick her up, things like that. And that that's partly because of her specific story. Like, uh, you know, we found out that something was wrong and that her mom was missing when her mom didn't pick her up from school. So that was like really big for me in the, you know, in the beginning and even still is, is like, if I need to pick her up from somewhere, like I want to be on time because I know where her brain might go if I'm not there. So, and I think that is maybe just an example of like the larger idea of she lost her, a huge anchor in her life and just trying to make everything else as stable and predictable as possible. Yeah, to help establish that safety and that security in the midst of it. Right. Because she, you know, she's still a kid and she still is going to be like, need to play and be crazy and in the moment and doing what she does spontaneously to be able to do that safely. You know, she needs to know that the boundaries are clear and that it's safe and that the people I need, like the one person I have left is going to be there for me. How about for her school? Because she was at five and a half. She was in first grade, kindergarten? kindergarten, kindergarten. How did you reach out to the school? How were they able to be helpful and supportive? Well, they contacted me. Kari died on Friday and the principal called me on Saturday or Sunday to talk about like how to communicate this with the community. Uh, you know, she was a pretty wise person, the principal, and she, you know, she didn't want to contradict what I had told Sylvia, um, but she also was really clear with me as like, people are going to talk, which, you know, I think at the time I was so out of it, I didn't, didn't really put it all together, but she was basically telling me like, okay, you told Sylvia that her mom fell, but the story is going to get around and it's going to get back to Sylvia. And so you want to be more clear about what happened mm. with the community. So uh, they called me in and, you know, asked me what I needed and offered me resources and stuff like that. And they did what they could, I think, in terms of um, checking in with Sylvia. I think the, um, the counselor tried to be attentive to her the, uh, to the best of his ability. Uh, we ran into the principal in between her kindergarten and first grade year. And um, she just very sweetly asked Sylvia, like, which of the first grade teachers do you like the best? And Sylvia told her, and, you know, that's the one she got the next year. I'm thinking a little bit about how the questions that kids ask when they're five and six and seven change pretty dramatically as they get older. And now that Sylvia's 16, how, how, how have the questions that she's asked you or asked about her mom or asked about how she died, how have those changed and shifted over the years? Well, there's a lot more nuance now. You know, when she was little, it was more like what did mom like to eat? You know, just real simple, concrete questions. And now her questions are more like, you know, what kind of person was she? You know, stuff that's more complicated to answer. Yeah, and I think she really does. I mean, she experiences the loss differently as she grows. I mean, I've definitely seen that over the years where she almost like she goes through it again because she's now experiencing and understanding it in a different way. You know, she'll have sort of more intense episodes of revisiting her grief for a little while. 
yeah, as her, as her brain develops and is able to comprehend things in a different way, it's like, yeah, oh, I got to go through all of this again, even though it can feel different than it did when I was five, but I'm still revisiting it. Yeah. I mean, when she was little, it was a lot of like, oh, I'm going to imagine my mom is living on the moon. Right. And, you know, she had this whole fantasy about what's going on up there on the moon where people go when they die and she's up there. And, uh, and now I think she's really understanding more like, you know, she's going through different life stages and things are either happening to her or things that she's going through and understanding that her mom's not there to see it. She's experiencing that whole thing in like kind of a different way. Like these new achievements and decisions that are going to potentially have an influence on her life course. Right. Yeah. I mean, her mom died when she was pretty young, right? So at this point, she's lived much more of her life with me um, as her only parent than uh, than she ever did with the two of us. So, uh, I mean, I guess it's not like unusual for her, but I think she still, I think um, I'm sure she still feels that loss and that absence. Yeah, that you can still be grappling with it, even if it's a familiar state of being. And speaking of you in this equation, I mean, so often when a parent dies or a caregiver dies, the focus is on kids, as it should be. Right. And then how about the other adults? And like, what was your grief like? I was pretty focused on, I just got to get stuff done for a long time. Although I did, I had, um, I was really lucky. I was able to take three plus months off of work. So those first three to four months, I was really just focused on taking care of Sylvia and just taking things really slowly for myself. Like all, there's all kinds of paperwork and, uh, you know, dealing with the social security office and all kinds of stuff with lawyers and things that had to be done. And I was able to, um, do that while I didn't uh, have to go to work. And then I was able to take care of myself in other ways. Like I had a phase where I was doing a lot of yoga and other things just to sort of let my brain process, I guess. Not having to work was a, a great benefit there. But I think even for the first year or two, I was pretty much like just on my to-do list. Mm -hmm. I don't know like how much I was really dealing, dealing with my grief. I don't know. I mean, I was doing counseling and all kinds of stuff. So uh, I was, but I was also just kind of, this has to get done. This has to get done. You know, I'm the only person now. I have to do everything. It took me a while to get back to sort of taking care of myself. It's interesting where a lot of people will say like, well, I haven't been grieving or I didn't grieve. And I always wonder like there's different ways of grieving and not having to be like in the moment, getting things done. What's next? What's next? What's next? That that's part of grief. Cause if your wife hadn't died, you wouldn't be doing that. Right. And then oftentimes when I, I wonder if when people say, you know, I wasn't grieving or not dealing with my grief, it's like, I didn't have the time or space or capacity to touch into the emotional pieces of it in quite that way. Cause there were all these other things that were taking my attention or just was too much, too intense, too overwhelming. Sometimes some time and space allows people to like, okay, here's layer one of those emotions. Here's layer two. Mm -hmm. What's this exploration going to be like? I think that's true. You know, you're obviously processing and, and, uh, working through things, even if you're not 
like sitting down and thinking like, what's my grief like today? (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder sometimes too, if when, when people are saying that it's from this place of like, it's been two years, it's been three years, it's been 10 years. I'm still having feelings about this loss. Does that mean I didn't grieve right at the beginning as if, if I just grieve right early on, I can just get rid of it and I won't feel it anymore. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think that's real. I feel like I still have those feelings and like sadness. It comes up fairly regularly and I'm sure it will for the rest of my life. And so in this time period, you're like focused on what to do next, kind of keeping things together. You've got Sylvia who's having big emotions, anger, sadness, How did you navigate your grief, her grief, being there for her, having time and space for your own experience? Well, I focused more on her probably um, for a long time. I remember I had people telling me, you need to get a sitter to come once a week so you can get out and do things. And I'm just like, what would I do? (laughs) I I had no idea. Uh, I do have this one vivid memory of Sylvia being with my parents and I didn't have a plan. I just like left my house. It's like, I can leave my house because I don't have a kid here. I have not, I'm not stuck here. So I left my house and started walking and was walking up and down, you know, busy street, like looking for something to do. And there was just nothing. And I just ended up then walking back home. (laughs) But, uh, but eventually I did follow people's advice and I got, uh, somebody to come once a week who would hang out with Sylvia for three to four hours. And so I could go out and do things. And that was huge for me, Mm. just being able to sort of rediscover myself. Whereas I think really for that, I don't know if it was a year, maybe I think it might've been two years. You know, I really wasn't going out and doing anything. I was just, uh, working because I'd gone back to work. I was just working and taking care of my kid. So to start uh, having some time to do things for myself was huge. And sounds like unfamiliar terrain at first. You had to relearn how to do that. Yeah, exactly. You know, whereas when I was married and when we were parenting together, you know, we just made time for each other to go do the things that we wanted to do. Two of the terms that come up a lot are like single parent versus solo parent. And I think of sometimes single parent, maybe people have their relationship is dissolved and there's another parent still in the picture, but we're not parenting together. But in your case, you became the only parent. What do you think is unique about being an only parent versus being a single parent? Well, there's a couple things. One, of course, is you don't have the two or three or four days a week when your kid or kids are with the other parent. So you're on all the time, even when your kid is with somebody else, it's not their parent. It's like a sitter or an uncle and aunt or grandparents or something like that. And so for me anyway, I always felt like, you know, even when I did have childcare, like the responsibility was still on me because I was the only parent. On the other hand, you don't have that other parent to negotiate with. And I remember feeling, and this was early on, where I was still super sad, still like grieving a lot, and but feeling like, well, yeah, I can make whatever decision I want. I don't have to negotiate with anybody. With anybody, I can just do this the way I want to do it. Yeah, I don't have to pass this by anyone or even discuss it with anyone. Right, yeah, it's just 
it's all me now. I get to decide. And speaking of all me, I'm not a parent, but I have the sense that parents sometimes doubt their decisions or doubt their the things that they're doing and oftentimes process that with the other adults that's in their life to say, how should we approach this? How do we respond to this, you know, our kid getting a bad grade? Who did you talk to? Who did you process those things with? I had a counselor. I had some friends where I could bounce things off of, but really it was just sometimes nobody. It was just doing it myself. And uh, when it wasn't really about parenting necessarily, when it was more like, you know, should I do this to the house or should I, what should I get at the grocery store? I mean, I would talk to Sylvia, which was like, you know, she's like six years old. And I was definitely having conversations with her that were not age appropriate just because like I wasn't sure what to do and I needed somebody to talk to about it. And it definitely affected her because, you know, she and I were living together. And so what do you think about this idea? Should we build a new deck on the back? (laughs) I'm curious what her grocery item input was. (laughs) Yeah. Um, She likes, uh, well, back then, a little different probably than it was now, but Cheddar bunnies. She loved, she loved cheddar bunnies back in the day. You have a whole basket of cheddar bunnies. Mac and, and cheese. Some mac and cheese and some sugary cereal. Corn dogs. Those were the big hits back a long time ago. She's like, Dad, we can just skip the fruit and vegetable aisle. No need anything there. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing kids talk quite a bit about is when one of their parents dies, they start to realize, oh, my parents played really different roles in raising me. Like my dad who died was the one that did all the discipline and my mom was the fun easy parent now my mom's trying to set guidelines and it's it's a little messy Mm -hmm. did you have i know sylvia was pretty young at five five and a half but do you have a sense of how that was in terms of what role you played and what role kari played oh yeah i was definitely more of the um fun easy person kari was around a lot more often we for most of those early years for sylvia from when she was like six months old until about three and a half. We also lived with Kari's parents who had health issues. So Kari was home dealing with basically three dependents all the time. My role was more like coming home from work and like scooping the kid up and taking her upstairs and playing Mm. until dinner was done and, you know, and getting her out of there on Saturday. We had a thing called, we called it daddy day was Saturday. And every Saturday morning, Sylvia and I would get up and go. So Kari had time. So I was definitely more of the, uh, playful parent. Kari was more of the, like, I'm around all the time. I'm going to teach you manners and Mm. other things like that kind of parent. And, uh, And I think that came up after Kari died, because obviously now I have to be more of the disciplinarian and set the boundaries more than I did before. And I think that's when, you know, a lot of the anger would come out where she would get really mad at me and cry and yell, I want my mother and stuff like that was partly like I was doing something that she used to do. Mm. And that was really hard for Sylvia. And you were changing for her as well. Like the daddy she knew is suddenly acting as a very different daddy. Yeah. And I mean, I can't say for sure, but I would imagine I was a lot less fun for a while. (laughs) (laughs) I know everyone's experience is so unique and so different, but are there like some suggestions that you have for other parents who are maybe facing a similar situation? I would say like the most important thing you can do for your kid is just watch and listen. 
just like it's different for every adult, it's going to be different for every kid. And they're going to tell you what they need, even if they can't tell you what they need. So just really paying attention to them will be helpful in figuring out how to take care of them and then making time for yourself. It mm -hmm. took me a couple of years to get to that, but it was super important. I think I became a better parent when I was taking time for myself. And you as a family chose to come to a peer support group here at the Dougie Center. How did that change or affect things for you and Sylvia? Oh, it was huge for us. Just the, um, just that peer aspect of it. Most of the time you're out in the world, you are different than everyone else. There aren't that many other kids who have a parent that's died. There aren't that many people out there who are widowed. You don't, you just don't run across them very often. And, uh, and then you come to the Dougie Center and the, your whole group has had a similar experience as you and just helps you to feel normal. And uh, for me, especially, it was helpful to see people in different parts of the process. I have this vivid memory of like, must have been one of my first few groups. These two women were in the group and they were laughing and um, they seemed really happy. And I was just in shock. I was like, how could you possibly be happy? And of course, they had their partners had died five or seven years ago or something like that. And just having that seed planted in my mind that, you know, things will change and mm -hmm. I can be happy again. That was a big support, very helpful for me. Like even recognizing I'm definitely not there, but this is a possibility for me at some point in the future. Right, right. Yeah, it's because of that specific experience that you had, not you specifically, but that type of experience that we had to add in the guideline around laughter in our groups that for years we didn't talk about it. But now as one of our group guidelines is to say laughter happens and depending on where you are in the process or where you are in this specific day, you may feel comfort and solace in that, or you might be really mad and pissed off about it. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Sylvia actually taught me that one very early on the first week or so after her mom died. Like I would basically get in bed with her every night until she fell asleep one night, like a day or two before the funeral. And, uh, and she had been to her grandmother's funeral like a year and a half earlier. So she had a sense of how it, how it went. And, uh, she asked me if I was going to say anything at the funeral. And I said, uh, you know, I don't think so. I don't think I'll be able to do that. And she said, I want to say something. I was like, really? You know, this is like a five-year-old kid. So I'm like, well, what do you want to say? And, um, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it was something to the effect of, just like you, I'm sad that my mom died, but even though we're sad, we can still have fun. I just said, sure, you can say that. <laughs> and, she, and she did. Like, I wasn't sure that she was actually going to want to do it, right? Because when you're in the room with a bunch of people, mm. all of a sudden, uh, you might not want to. But she, she did. And uh, I went up there with her and I had to whisper it in her ear because she was so nervous, but uh, you know, she, I whispered it in her ear and she said it and it was, it was powerful. That, does she remember that now? That's a great question. I don't know. I, I would think so. I'm at least because the story has been told so many times mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of things that she remembers from when she was little that may just be stories I've told her or, uh, pictures that she's seen. 
and they are their memories to her, whether or not she really does remember the actual event. I think sometimes that can be one of the surprising aspects of grief for particularly younger kids, like four and five and six, that they become these unofficial spokespeople for the emotional landscape of what's happening in their family because mm. they haven't been socialized yet to know this kind of conversation makes everybody else really uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> so they're much more willing to come forward and say, my daddy died, my mom died, here's what life is like at home. Mm-hmm. Now my mom does the cooking and she's a bad cook. You know, so they're, it seems like they're more able to come forward sometimes and speak in a way that the adults are like, I can't get those words out. Right. And that's one of those things that changes, though, when they get a little older, like they get older and they go through um, those middle school years, they get super self-conscious. And even now she's just 16, um, but she still like withholds her story, you know, and she just wants to like get to know people and just, uh, you know, as who she is. And she doesn't want to be that kid whose mom died. And eventually she, she tells people and it doesn't like bother her if the story comes out in another way. We did a little thing for one of the news channels and uh, she was in a uh, improv troupe and the, uh, the show or the little clip ran on the news around the same time. And she hadn't told anybody in mm. her improv troupe, you know, that she only had one parent. And she said, I think even now, like if the subject comes up, she still says my parents when she's obviously just talking about me just because she doesn't want to call attention to that fact. But it, like the thing was on the news and one of the parents of another kid in the improv troupe saw it and, you know, told their kid. And so like, the word got out and she was fine with it. So it doesn't bother her when it comes out in some other way. The story comes out in some other way, but she doesn't uh, share it like she used to. She was, I think when she was little, she was more open, but then she also, she get, you get reactions. Like she, she'll tell a story about being on the playground and some kid saying, where's your mom? And her saying, my mom is dead. And that kid like face just like <laughs> drops and they don't want to play anymore. And so that's part of also probably how she learned, like, maybe I shouldn't share this right away. Mm. Although I, for a lot of folks who are in that young adult range, they start to do that sometimes on purpose because mm-hmm. they really want to like, Hey, be a little more careful about your questions, people. Right. <laughs> be a little bit more aware. Yeah. And I don't know that she's gotten there yet, but she may at some point. Well, Josh, I really appreciate you coming in and talking today and sharing about Sylvia and your own experience with grief and what it was like to parent, you know, a five and a half year old through this. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun and interesting. And listeners out there, thank you for being part of our community. We appreciate all of the ratings and reviews that you give us and iTunes that helps other people like you find our podcast. And the Ducky Center is a 100% community funded organization. So if you ever feel drawn to supporting our work and helping the show move forward, you can go to our website, dougy.org forward slash grief out loud and click the donate button. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. 